Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll be looking at contaminated drinking water in Cambridgeshire, why an attack on Scotland's environment regulator has brought it to its knees. We'll be looking at the murder of white-tailed eagles. And then we're going to look at the UK's first climate refugees, something that you wouldn't think you would see here for some time, but is already happening. And then the Chemical Brothers are going to be along to freak you out about playgrounds and artificial turf, because nowhere is safe through the eyes of Simon and Gareth. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. First up, we're going to be looking at the big green news of the fortnight. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report, and as usual, I'm here with journalist Tess Colley. Hello. And editor Jamie Carpenter. Hello. Our first story is about contaminated drinking water, and it's a real concern. More than a 1,000 people in Cambridgeshire have been drinking tap water from a source that has contained high levels of toxic perfluorooctane sulfonate, PFOS, or PFOS. It's a man-made chemical which has been associated with increased cholesterol, low birth weight, and a suppressed immune response, so it is a real issue. It's one chemical among thousands in a group of chemicals called PFAS, which have been studied to some degree, and the results are quite worrying. Jamie, can you tell us a little bit about PFAS? Yeah, PFAS, some people might have heard of them referred to as forever chemicals. They're kind of um, pretty nasty and basically ubiquitous in, in our environment. Why forever chemicals? Because they, they just they just don't degrade. That's why they're there forever. Great. Persistent, toxic, bioaccumulative, anything else? Well there's there's a long a long list of things that they've been linked to, so um in terms of health problems. So types of cancer, thyroid disease, low birth weight, high cholesterol, all sorts of really horrible stuff. They're ubiquitous in the environment, but they're also just generally ubiquitous and they're used in all sorts of stuff, like food packaging, cosmetics, cookware waterproof clothing. So it's incredibly likely that you'll come into contact with PFAS in, in the course of your day-to-day yeah. activities, which is pretty frightening. Very frightening. It's a huge number of consumer products and, and lots of industrial processes as well. But the substance that was found in uh, the drinking water in South Cambridgeshire was PFOS. This is one that's widely used in uh, firefighting foams from the late 1960s to the early 2000s in huge quantities. Um, they'll be used at airfields and firefighting training centres, military installations and so on. And what happened in Cambridgeshire is that there is an aquifer that lies below Duxford Airfield. And we don't have proof to show that the PFOS has come from Duxford Airfield, but it's quite likely given that there's a firefighting training section of the airfield. Anyway, last year, the um, an aquifer close to the airfield, the one lying next to it or beneath it, which serves around 1,080 people living in Stapleford and Great Shelford, was found to have PFOS levels in it as high as almost 400 nanograms per litre. Uh, to put that into context, the safe drinking water advisory limit is no higher than 100 nanograms per litre, so it's four times that amount. Um, when the water company found out about it, it took the aquifer out of supply, so the people in those areas are no longer drinking that water. But they also said that they blended that water with other sources so that the people drinking it in those villages never had it at that level, at the 400 nanograms per litre level. However, they said to me specifically that they could not guarantee a blend below 100 nanograms per litre, and that's why they took it out. So they've kind of contradicted themselves. Um, 
Uh, this seems like a, a really, really shocking discovery. We don't know the impacts of this or how long the people have been drinking it because the water company is being very tight-lipped. However, we're really far behind understanding PFAS contamination in the UK compared with other countries, aren't we, Jamie? Yeah, we are. I mean, I think I think the the story from Cambridgeshire is concerning, and and the levels of the chemicals in the drinking water is concerning. Mm. Um, but it's not actually very surprising, given that we've been using these chemicals for many years in 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 the UK, and they've basically been put into the environment with very little concern about yeah. their their impacts. Exactly. So, and as you say, we're, we're we're kind of way behind other nations in in what we're doing to understand and mitigate the risks of PFAS. We we know that they're ubiquitous in the environment but beyond that we don't really know very much about the scale of pollution in the UK mm. and, and and we see in, in the US and Australia manufacturers and users of PFAS have paid out many many millions of, of dollars to, to settle legal cases where drinking water has been polluted exactly. but we're not seeing anything like that here at the moment. Mm. So much so that there was a Hollywood film starring Mark Ruffalo called Dark Waters about PFAS contamination and how it's affected communities who've had their water contaminated um, but here in the UK, we just don't really know the scale of it because the research hasn't hasn't been done. And also, we're far behind in terms of the safe limits for PFOS in drinking water. Tess, could you tell me a little bit about the limits that have been sort of set or advised around the world? Yes. Yeah, so in the US, some individual states have set much tighter PFOS drinking water limits than here. Um, in California, they've got 6.5 nanograms per litre. And in New Jersey, you're looking at 13, Minnesota, 15. And the European Food Safety Authority calculated that a tolerable exposure limit for PFOS in food should be 4.4 nanograms per kilogram of body weight per week. So yeah, we're 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 quite we're not quite there. No. And what does four point four nanograms per kilogram of body weight per week equate to in terms of drinking water? Because I think that calculation has been done. Yes, so that that figure corresponds to a drinking water limit of just two nanograms per litre. Um, so that's that's pretty shocking. It is indeed. Obviously, this has created a little bit of concern in the area, but Cambridge Water is trying to placate people and saying they have a monitoring plan in place for 47 PFASs. Um, the drinking water inspectorate has just told the water sector to start testing for those, although there's a bit of a problem because not all labs can do it. Um, but the water company is saying that the levels of PFAS that uh, customers taps have always been blended with other sources before reaching customers and that it means that these PFAS levels were at or around the lowest risk level of 10 nanograms per litre, even though it told me it was unable to guarantee a blend below 100 nanograms per litre. There's going to be a lot more to come on this story. I think this is just the tip of the iceberg, so watch this space. For our next story, it's going to sound a little bit familiar. If you've been listening to previous episodes of the Eco Chamber, you'll know that the English Environment Agency is a bit of a state, according to the people that work there. However, in this episode, we're going to talk briefly about what's going at SEPA, Scotland's Environmental Protection Agency. So in uh, Christmas 2020, SEPA suffered a massive cyber attack that all but crippled the regulator. Jamie, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, that SEPA's had a pretty nightmarish last couple of years. It has. So um, it had to regulate during a pandemic, which we know has been a challenge for environmental regulators. But but yeah, this, this kind of massive cyber attack has... Um, really um, caused it massive problems. So more than 4,000 files were stolen by an international ransomware group. So SEPA lost those files. It lost access to almost all of its data and systems. So everything from historical water quality data to, to email, they, they've had a huge task to try and get over that. And it's had some real practical implications for 
people who who operate in in Scotland. So there's been a, a kind of growing backlog in permit applications. There's been Super's had a limited capability to receive, verify, and approve applications for the export or import of waste, and mm. there's also been delays in waste planning applications as a result because CEPA is a statutory consultee on those applications. So, so there's been a, a really big kind of fallout and that, that still is being felt, I believe, in Scotland. Apparently a lot of this data was now available on the dark web because CEPA didn't pay the ransom because they didn't want to set a precedent. But yeah, it's all there out on the on the dark web. Do you visit the dark web much, Jamie, Tess? Not that I'm going to admit to Every on, a, on a public podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So what's happening there now? So a couple of years has passed. Is CEPA still on its knees or is it is it getting back up to uh, scratch? Well, I mean, CEPA's line is still that its recovery from the the attack, which it describes as, as challenging and complex, is still continuing apace. So it's still dealing with it. Um, CEPA's response to the cyber attack has been held up as, as being pretty good. Before Christmas, Terry Ahern, who, who we'll probably talk about a bit more in a minute, was mm. recognised at the Scottish Cyber Awards for speaking out in response to international serious and organised cybercrime. I think Audit Scotland said quite recently uh, that the impacts of the hack are still unclear. So I think there's still a lot of cleaning up to do um, because not only did the uh, CEPA's live ledgers go, but all the available backups went as well. But there's been more news from CEPA, hasn't there, Tess? Can mm. you fill us in on, on, the, on the latest? Yes. So quite dramatically, in last month in January, it was announced that uh, Terry O'Hearn, we've just been talking about, was uh, to step down with immediate effect from CEPA uh, following conduct allegations. Right. Um, we don't yet know exactly what the nature of those conduct allegations are, but it, it came as quite a shock to everyone, I think, across the, the industry. Because mm. he was there for seven years, wasn't he? So what did he do during his seven years? Well, he certainly had big plans for for CEPA. He, when he came in, he wanted to develop sector plans with yeah. industry and stakeholders, um, focusing on practical ways of delivering environmental outcomes and social economic outcomes. Um, and he particularly wanted to crack down on waste crime and mm-hmm. create markets for waste products in order to deflect them from criminal hands, because that's becoming a really big problem about organised crime yeah. getting into waste. Um I think it's debatable whether or not he had much success there. Mm. Um, but he, that's what he wanted to do. And he wanted to improve environmental performance of aquaculture, which is, that's talking about, you know, salmon farms. and mm. um, salmon farms up there yes. in Scotland. Yeah. And he, he said in an interview with ENDS that he spends a lot more time on that than most other things because of the level of controversy surrounding it. So that's that's what he set out to do. Obviously, his time's been cut short. Mm. And COVID and the cyber attack, I think, put a... Uh, a lot of obstacles in his way. Yeah. Um, so maybe not the legacy he really wanted to leave. Yeah. Well, he's now working as a self-employed environmental specialist. Um, and we will return to the story when we know more about the impacts of the hack and the reasons for Ahern's shock departure. Moving on now, our next story is about the plight of white-tailed sea eagles in the UK. The sea eagle was driven to extinction in the UK in the early 19th century, but they used to be widespread. It was a result of humans killing the birds to protect livestock, but also hunting the eagle's prey, which is fish and small mammals and other birds. The last known pair were thought to be nesting on Culver Cliff on the Isle of Wight in the 1780s, 
according to the Natural History Museum. However, they were successfully brought back to Scotland in 1975 and now there are about 140 breeding pairs and they're legally protected from persecution. This is a really good news story. However, (laughs) we don't like to just talk about good news. We like to bring you right back down. Um, So England followed suit um, in 2019 and 2020, releasing some white-tailed eagles on the Isle of Wight. And it was due to then go ahead and start doing the same in Norfolk. But what's been happening, Tess? Well, there was some very well sad news a couple of weeks ago about two white-tailed eagles found dead in Dorset. This kind of came to light because Dorset police put out an appeal for information saying that they'd recovered two birds on multi-agency operations in the south of England mm. um, and that the bodies were being sent for post-mortem and toxicological examinations to determine the causes of death. The fact it's being sent for a toxicological examination suggests that yeah. um, they don't think it's a, a natural cause. But for all that, we don't know the cause yet. But, you know, this has caused absolute horror amongst not yeah. just conservationists. There's but so few of them. There's so few of them. And they, these, the, the ones from the Isle of Wight, they were only brought back in 2019. Yeah. And it was a real success story that they were taking off, literally. Um, <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> yeah. Um, and doing quite well. Um, the police haven't said where the bodies were found. Mm. And commentators are speculating that um, the bodies were found on um, a game shooting estate. But again, that's we don't actually know the location yet. Mm. Uh, the police haven't said. But isn't there a, a slightly uh, a further twist in the tale in that the uh, MP of the area, who was never a fan of um, bringing these birds back, might yeah. have some links? Yeah, well, it was, so this story was bad enough as it was, and then it took a really strange twist because uh, the local Conservative MP uh, for West Dorset, Chris Loder, mm. he went on social media saying that eagles weren't welcome in Dorset, and he didn't want the police focusing on on that. That he wanted them focusing on county lines and that sort of thing, and that you know there was huge backlash against that. And then it has emerged last week that Loder received £14,000 worth of donations from an estate in his constituency, which, according to The Guardian, uh, also runs shoots. Mm. This isn't to say that the Eagles were found on, on that estate no. uh, at all. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? Very interesting indeed. I can't imagine any motivations for not wanting to have these beautiful birds back in your area. I mean, Jamie, do you have any, would you hate to have white-tailed eagles in your part of the world? Not especially, no. I mean, I, I think, <laughs> I think um, I, I kind of wonder whether it's time for us to give out some kind of badge for the person that makes the most environmentally regressive statement of the past two weeks. <laughs> what a great idea. And, um, Can he be our inaugural winner? He, I think he could be. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, so there's, there's, there's loads of bizarre things around this um, Chris Loder stuff. I mean, what, what, one is the... Um, he posted this photo of, of an eagle kind of carrying off a blooded lamb. Was it him that posted that photo? He yeah. did, yeah. Oh, and, okay, and, right. and obviously that, that picture was... <laughs> the, the lamb was, was already dead when it was kind of placed in front of the bird as part of a staged... Shoot. Is yeah. that confirmed? Do we know that? The photographer. Yeah. The photographer but, confirmed but, but, it. Yeah. Sort of piled on Twitter. And there's, this there's, is other, nuts. there's other amazing stuff. The, the, the thing that I, I kind of found quite um, staggering as well is, is only a couple of days before um, Chris Loder came out and said this, he, he kind of he applauded the police for getting involved in the Kurt Zuma cat kicking incident. So it's, all, it's kind of obviously, it's not okay to kick a cat, but it's okay to wow, kill Loder, a protected bird. Get your priorities in order. I know. Oh my God. What has the MP said about the uh, allegations? Well, you know, he says that he 
didn't feel at all influenced by the money from the estate and his dislike of eagles comes from his his fears about their impact on farming. That's his view. Mm. As shocking as this is, and it really is a horrible story, this kind of raptor persecution isn't rare at all. There have been reports of them being unlawfully killed across the country with police investigating a huge number of deaths, including buzzards, sparrowhawks, goshawks, hen harriers and loads more. Have you got any more information on on these? Mm. As you say, it's quite widespread. The so last year, the RSPB recorded its worst year yet, it said, for, for bird of prey persecution in the UK. Um, and their report said, you know, more than half of incidents that took place were in connection to land managed for game bird right. shooting. The, that report, I should say, sparked absolute ire from game bird shooting associations. Really? That's, yeah, Surprising. that's for reasons you, you could imagine. But, you know, it's interesting, this, this area, I find, because the game bird shooting kind of lobby will... You know, they're often they style themselves as conservationists. But I think there's lots of problems across the board. You mentioned hen harriers before. There is a programme that Natural England is running to improve hen harrier numbers and they are improving. So that is a success and Natural England celebrates it. And it's yeah. often something the game bird uh, lobby point towards. Mm-hmm. But even Natural England, they note that the biggest threat to the hen harriers in this programme is illegal persecution on game bird shooting sites. Mm. So it's this you can't they can't argue that they're not linked. Yeah, yeah. This government seems to be in favor of uh, reintroductions potentially perhaps more mm. than previous governments. I mean they have been saying an awful lot about it and they've got um enthusiasts, you know, on the team like Zach Goldsmith yeah. and um even Boris Johnson has said and Michael Gove you know, that they're in favor of um reintroducing some of these creatures and there's a new species reintroduction task force being created which they're mm. hiring a, a head of as as we speak so you know, on the one beaver. sorry sorry bring back beaver bring back beaver to, to exactly exactly uh yeah so they seem they're making all the right noises and there there is some movement in this area but it remains to be seen whether they can you know, tackle these landowners because that seems to be the biggest hurdle in the way. Now we're going to go on to our quiz section. We never quite know what it's going to be about. It's been about top of the poops for a few episodes. It was about clean cities in the last episode, but Jamie has some more ideas. Jamie, can you explain what on earth we're going to be doing now? Yes, well, we're going to return to the Clean Cities Index. Great. No, no, no poop this time. Um, <laughs> although I am embarrassed to say that I've yet to be able to get authorization to spend any money on buzzers. So, no. Um, oh, dear. Haymarket's got a very tough new expenses policy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, oh, dear. Okay. So, well, you know, right. t- do you want to test yours? But test? Yeah. Buzz. That is, yeah. That's a high quality buzz. That's good. Ding! <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Excellent. So there you go. Well, I, th- I think next time I'll, I think I'll have to rummage around my my kid's toy box to see if I can find something that's um, more more suitable. But um, but they sound good. Um, so so this time I'd like to look at green spaces. Hmm. So one of the Clean Cities Index's categories is public realm, which takes into account things like the amount of green space per capita, the share of built-up spaces within 300 meters of park the amount of woodland per capita, brownfield sites and fly tipping incidents. Okay. Um, so can you guess which city is top of the table in this category? Buzz. Is it yes. London? It's not, no. Ding! Bristol. No, but mm. I'll give you, it does begin with a, with B though. Bath, Birmingham. Birmingham. <laughs> Buzz. <laughs> Buzz. Bournemouth. No, sorry. Ding. Blythe. <laughs> I can't think of any... Um, whereabouts in the country? Mm. It's north of Watford. 
that's like most of the most country. Of the country. Uh, um, Bradford. It's that, that kind of area. Ding! Barnsley. 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 Oh, yes. <laughs> this wasn't really a test of our no, knowledge, was it? It was a test of <laughs> <laughs> cities beginning with B. Yeah. Okay. Towns. Raise the, uh, make it a bit more uh, intellectually challenging next time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's quite surprising. What, yeah. what is it about Barnsley that um, gets it so gets it to the top of the table? Well, it's, it scored very well on on the the amount of green space per capita, um, the share of built-up spaces within 300 metres of a park, public garden or playing field, and the amount of woodland. It, it scored very highly on those three indicators. So they were... Mm. That was kind of what, what, from looking at it, that that seemed to be what pushed it to the top of that that particular ranking. I think I think it scored. I think it was seventh overall in terms of all cities right. on, on the index. Great place to live. Everyone moon to Barnsley. Mm. So, what would I need to do if I wanted to check out how green my my city was? Well, as it was part of the Clean Cities Index, we published a, a green spaces dashboard, which um, takes some open source data from the Ordnance Survey and, and maps those around different cities. So you can you can look at that, and if you want to go and take a look at that, you can go to engreport.com forward slash cities. There's lots more stuff there to enjoy. Great! It is a fantastic dashboard. There's so much information on it. Uh, so that's the end of our Big Green News section. Thanks very much, Tess, who's going to be leaving us now. Jamie and I are now going to move on to our deep dive section where we're going to be looking at the UK's climate refugees. It's time for the deep dive section. Jamie and I are now going to talk about climate refugees and climate refugees here in the UK. The residents of Fairbourne in North Wales are sandwiched between the mountains and the rising tides. They live in a very low-lying area. And they have been told that by about 2050, the seawall literally is the only thing between them and the village being washed away. It's not going to be maintained from 2050 onwards because it just costs too much money. And there's a pretty cold cost-benefit analysis done by the Treasury when making decisions on whether investment is going to be made in something like flood defences. Obviously, it's not worth it. Uh, in terms of money, according to the Treasury. So they're in a bit of a pickle. Can you tell me a bit more, Jamie? Yeah. So I think ultimately around, as a result of this decision, around a thousand people will have to find new homes. Um, and I think I think despite the decision being made quite some years ago now, I think it was 2013, the, yeah. it kind of continues to rumble on. So only, only a few weeks ago, it was reported that residents were complaining that an axe is hanging over their heads, but they, they feel that they're they're still waiting for answers about what will happen if they do inevitably have to leave their homes. Yeah, and they want as much notice as possible. And obviously it's been talked about for a long time, about deciding whether they you know, need to sell up and go. But then if they sell up, who's going to buy their homes? Is the government going to bail them out? Strangely, people are still buying homes. So there was, there was a, a recent press report which um, cited analysis that house prices in the area are continuing to shoot up despite, <laughs> despite there being this axe hanging over the village's head. Wow. But Fairbourne isn't the only place where the rising tides have been taking or threatening to take homes and villages. There have been lots of properties along the East Coast, which is quite soft in terms of the geology, uh, and houses are tumbling onto beaches and into waters. There's a a village called Haysborough that lost 35 homes. Uh, And in the East Riding of Yorkshire, GPS surveys have picked up accelerated erosion rates of, I think it's more than a metre every month, at a place called Skipsey. This sounds like something that needs to be tackled pretty soon. What What is the government doing about it? Well, it's, it's a bit of a policy mess, unfortunately. The, the Climate Change Committee says that the policies and practices for the coast aren't actually facing up to the inevitability of, of, of future change here. And, and coastal management is 
in reality covered by what they're calling a complex patchwork of legislation and is being carried out by a variety of organisations with different responsibilities. So it's, although although it is something that um, the environment agency's leadership is quite quite vocal about, I think there's I think there's a, a feeling that there's still quite a long way to go to put the measures in place to deal with what is, what is a really really difficult problem to address. Yeah, because there's the overall sort of flood defence pot, isn't there? Then they've got shoreline management plans where sort of smaller areas, all the stakeholders get together and work out what they're going to do in the area to protect the coastline. But unfortunately, there's no, um, it's not statutory and there's no formal budget for it. So they can, you know, it's just like a really big wish list and, and something may or may not happen as a result of it. I think, you know, you're saying there about the Environment Agency being a bit more vocal about it recently. I think I, I've, I remember and about a year or two ago, Sir James Bevan saying the country needed to start being honest. We cannot prevent some parts of the country from flooding or eventually disappearing into the sea. So they're trying to really hold their hands up and saying you can't fight yeah. the tides. Yeah. Um, and Emma Howard Boyd, who's the chair, said we can't build our way out of this crisis. We've got to adapt to it. Um, but I haven't seen much in the way of policy action or ideas for for doing anything about to fix this problem no and and, and that's it's kind of surprising isn't it because there, there's so much at stake here the figures i've seen suggest that there's there's nine thousand kilometers of open english coast that's currently at risk from sea flooding erosion yeah. and landslips and, and and it's not just about homes so although, although there's hundreds of thousands of properties that are vulnerable to this stuff there's actually loads of really important infrastructure along our coastline so um, major roads railway lines railway stations power stations um, and also, worryingly, loads of nasty historic landfill sites that are being nibbled yes. away by the um, by the sea. Yeah, two thousand one hundred, I think, landfills. Um, some flood defences are even made from landfill. And at the time, it probably was a good idea. They're kind of I don't know reusing what they had, but now they're being eroded away. It's proven to be quite a duff idea, it's crazy, isn't it? Because you think people would know about coastal erosion. Uh, yeah, and I love talking about coastal erosion because I did a, uh, a geography degree. So, um, show off. Longshore drift is right up there with Oxbow Lakes <laughs> <laughs> and glaciation, surely. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, coastal erosion has always taken place. But one thing I find really fascinating is that um, off the east coast, or well, off the coast of Suffolk, actually, um, you can actually dive among the ruins of a medieval slice of a place called Dunwich, which now lies beneath the waves. I think it's probably not diving in the way I'm imagining it, as in <laughs> crystal clear and above a, a church roof or something, but you can sort of see bits of shapes where buildings used to be and they're, they're all um, under the waves now, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, because I, I, think, I think that kind of makes the point nicely, though, that, that, that we've always had these threats from coastal erosion. So, so as, as, as being an island nation, we've always experienced it and... And we do already have some of the, the fastest eroding cliffs in Europe. But yeah. but the, the, the point is that as sea levels rise and as, as storms get more intense, that the, these threats are going to intensify. And that, that's kind of what's causing this major headache for policymakers and, and, and all this uncertainty for, for residents. Yeah. But some people and some organisations are doing some new and innovative things, aren't they, to protect the coastline or, or their assets? Yeah, they are. So it's not, not all... Not all doom and gloom, right? Um, which is a bit different. <laughs> makes all, a change. <laughs> makes a change. Yeah. So, so one one thing um, we, we did a case study fairly recently about um, a sandscaping project in in Norfolk, which was um, is that Backton? Yeah, that's right. So the the project aimed to protect the Backton gas terminal, and basically it's kind of modelled on a, on a scheme in the Netherlands where where sand was dredged and used to build up the beaches in front of the terminal itself. So that's been a major project involving quite a lot of organisations. So um, it cost money, £22 million split between the terminal operator, 
North Norfolk Council and the Environment Agency, um, and, and as well as protecting the terminal itself, it's helped to protect one of the villages at Backton and, and Walcott. Mm. Um, so that, that's one approach that's being taken. There's other stuff, um, replant sand dunes. So if you, if you um, plant more marram grass, it can help yeah. to stabilise sand dunes, which can then act as natural defences for low-lying areas. And you can even look at things like floating homes. Yeah, and these ideas have come from the Netherlands, have they? Yeah, they seem to be kind of pioneering this, mm. presumably because they need to be. They need to be, otherwise yeah. they're going to be a bit wet. Mm. So all eyes on the Netherlands, because that seems to be where all the good ideas are coming from, and maybe we should be adopting more of their policy and engineering ideas. Now I'm going to hand over to the Chemical Brothers, Gareth Simkins and Simon Pickstone. Thanks, Rachel. This is Simon Pickstone. I'm the deputy editor at Ends Europe. I'm Gareth Simkin, senior writer at The Ends Report. This week we're talking about rubber crumb. It's an issue that has flown under the radar a little bit, but which some experts are freaking out about. Gareth, what's going on? Well, there is a bit of a claim going around that uh, rubber crumb is essentially the new asbestos. Can you just, sorry, let's just explain what exactly is rubber crumb? Absolutely. It's produced from grinding up old tyres. And I have to say, it's a pretty handy product. It's often used for making uh, cushioned sports pitches, uh, safety mats for uh, playgrounds, carpet underlay, soundproofing, even speed bumps. And it can even also be added to asphalt amongst a legion of other uses. So far, it sounds, well, it's a great way of reusing a waste product, that is, old tyres. And the disposal of whole tyres has been prohibited in the UK for almost a decade creating a boom in retreading and recycling operations. I mean, I have to admit, I've always been a little bit suspicious of this. Given that we know car tyres are not exactly the most environmentally friendly material, are we sure it's really a good idea to be grinding them up and then adding them to pavement and road surface? Well, you've got it in a nutshell there. Uh, the wisdom of using rubber crumb has been under question for really quite some time, partly because of the incidence of respiratory disease and cancers in um, workers in uh, tyre factories, and that's been uh, an issue at least historically. Um, there are also claims that uh, cancers in young sports players have been linked to this kind of exposure too. This is because of people playing on artificial turf and potentially kicking up rubber crumb as they as they kind of yeah. That's the, the that's the infill. So it's either sort of something that looks like grass with plastic bits sticking yeah. out of it, or it's just kind of the the underlay yeah. type type thing. And I think that's increasingly common. There are an awful lot of these pitches. There's something like fifty thousand of them across Europe. So rubber crumb also counts as microplastic. So it eventually gets into the wider environment through being uh, blown or washed away. And according to the European Chemicals Agency, about 16,000 tonnes of this stuff comes off these pitches every year. And that's compared to 42,000 tonnes of microplastic released in general. So it's a huge proportion of this. I guess one of the things then is what exactly are in tyres? Well, you think the major component of... Um, of a rubber tyre is rubber, but one of the biggest ones is actually carbon black, which is essentially the gunk from burning tar. The uh, International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, uh, has said that carbon black is a possible human carcinogen, although I have to qualify that because the body has made a number of, uh, let's just say, somewhat controversial claims in the past. The European Chemicals Agency has also uh, not identified it as such, but uh, the Californian authorities have said that it may be a carcinogen. So there's a bit of um, bit of controversy, a bit of differing thought amongst the world's regulators on this. Other substances in rubber crumb include uh, butylated hydroxyanisole, which is under EU assessment for endocrine disruption and is a suspected reprotoxin and carcinogen. 
Also for tertiary octylphenol, which is deemed corrosive, very toxic to aquatic life, endocrine disrupting, and is suspected as being persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic. And that's not even the full list of hazards. That's the edited version. So that's pretty so it's pretty clearly nasty stuff. And that's not to mention the various metals in it as well, zinc, selenium, lead, uh, and cadmium, according to uh, to one study. I mean, what, one of the other things that strikes me here is that we have an argument that rubber crumb is somehow recycling of old car tires. It seems to me that if it's recycling, it's only one life cycle more before this stuff has to be disposed of permanently. Yeah. It's not really circular economy. It's like like 90 degrees. Um, yeah, aside from the claims of toxicity, another perspective is that there's just delaying a waste management problem, not solving it. Uh, these surfaces are not recycled when they become too worn out. They just end up in landfill or incinerated, and then effectively circumventing the, the ban on dumping whole tyres, frankly. Another issue is they uh, apparently get really hot in the summer, unlike, uh, say, grass. Uh, and given all these concerns, it's not so surprising that the European Chemicals Agency began investigating the topic um, six years ago. And for that matter, it was working alongside authorities in the US and uh, FIFA, football's international governing body, uh, in response to reports of cancer among footballers. Meanwhile, the European Commission has cracked down on artificial turf and rubber crumb surfaces in general by slashing legal limits on a series of carcinogenic chemicals. A 20 milligram per kilogram limit on eight polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, such as benzoate, pyrene and chrysine, will apply from August, down from either 100 milligrams or one gram per kilogram now. The regulation, issued last summer, recognises that suppliers might have to increase the rate of compliance testing and switch to cleaner production input or cease the production of infill material, to quote from it. Companies with an interest in the sector expressed some concern when it uh, came out. The European Recycling Industries Confederation said in March that a ban on infill materials would bring in, in, into question an annual 527,000 tonnes of used tyres, and they warned that these could end up being incinerated or at worst being stockpiled and illegally landfilled. In contrast, I have no idea what's going on in the UK with this stuff. I mean, what's interesting regarding artificial pitches particularly is a couple of years ago now, we covered a kind of fake news furore, mainly in the German press, where there was a kind of misunderstanding about what uh, the European Chemicals Agency was up to. A bunch of German newspapers basically reported that the EU wanted to ban artificial pitches exactly because of this microplastics issue. Ika, Ika got in touch to say that's not, not really what they're proposing at this point. Um, although, as I understand it, green groups are advocating for it. Yeah, um, but there are at the same time there are alternatives to using this stuff, like uh, as I said, grass, uh, or just using cork or even hemp. But um, the European footballers say that um, doing so would be unduly expensive. So to go back to what I've said earlier, is rubber crumb the new asbestos? And frankly, I think that claim is a bit overcooked. But it's certainly something to be worried about and for which there are genuine reasons to have it banned. It's just the unintended consequences that uh, kind of concern me. I mean, I suppose the question in the UK, at least, where we have plenty of rain for the time being, is that grass seems to do a pretty decent job. It's not as toxic. It's great for biodiversity. It, it, it just doesn't seem in this country that would particularly need it. Well, no, I mean, it never bothered me when I was playing rugby. <laughs> 
So that brings us to the end of this episode of The Eco Chamber. Thank you to our editor, Jamie Carpenter, and journalist Tess Colley, Gareth Simpkins, and Simon Pickstone. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to energyreport.com, where you'll find more detail than you could possibly ever need. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you next time. The Eco Chamber was produced by Ade Bambala from Rethink Audio.